Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. The older I get, the more difficult things become, sometimes different phases. We're always going through difficulty things. Um, There's a lot of problems that you get to solve as an adult, and there's always a new one that you haven't gone through before. Somebody who was observant about this one time said, that's experience. He said, experience is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted. Does that sound right? So... A lot of people go through things that are difficult experiences, and, and we've all gone through those. They can be things like injuries or broken relationships, addictions, job loss. When we go through those things, people have a tendency to despair. They can get distressed. They can get defeated when they go through these difficult things. And that manifests as negative things, depression, Anxiety, uh, substance abuse, anger. Anger is common. Think about it. Do you know anybody that's ever been despaired and been like that? Has it been one of us? And I think I think it's common, and I think it's all right to talk about. I think it might be the reason that some people drag themselves out of bed on a Sunday morning to come and listen to something like this. It's a reason sometimes that people seek God in their lives when they're going through difficult things. Conversely, I think it's also a reason that people might challenge God. They might ask, why is this happening in my life? Or better, they might say, how could a good God allow something like this happen to a good person? How could he allow bad things to happen? And some people might just spin in their lives. They might get out of control in some sort of self-destructive pattern, like alcoholism, um, addictions, and they're literally enslaved by it. They're trapped by their own behavior. They can ask, what do I do with this problem? How do I get out of it? It's defeating me. Uh, These are real problems that I deal with uh, in the medical community, uh, real problems that we deal with in families, um, in our personal lives. And so, What are we going to do about it? How should we think about it? God gives us really good answers, fortunately, in his word. And some of those are clearly demonstrated to us in Judges. And so this morning, I'm going to take us back to Judges. And we're going to be in Judges chapter 2. We get to observe a little bit about how God interacts with his people. And before we go to the text, I just want to remind us a little bit about where we're at in Scripture. We've been in Judges a couple times before this fall, and and if you'll remember, it records the history of the Hebrew people after Joshua's transition from leadership, okay? And so now they're in a theocratic kingdom, and what that means is that during the Judges period, God should have been their king. They didn't have a physical king. In the beginning of chapter 2, it recounts how God wanted his people to listen to him, and he wanted them to honor him and have a close relationship with him. But they failed, and instead they chose idolatry. 
so what we saw is a people that are not performing perfectly. There are people whose human nature is in control instead of God's will, and they've got themselves into a mess. And they are in major distress at this point when we pick it up. They're despairing. And I'm pretty sure that some of them didn't understand why they were going through it. They didn't understand how there could have been a purpose in it. And one of the other things that we can learn from judges as we go through it, I hope they'll see, is that we can start to see the full nature and character of God. That's a huge theme in Judges. We see that he blesses his people, um, but he's also, he's got the capacity to display righteous anger and give his beloved people some consequences when they misbehave and, and they have some suffering as a result of that. And that's a difficult concept. But remember, it's, it's out of fatherly love when we read about things like that. He has real love for his people. He also has true justice. And so today we're going to see more about God's character. We're going to see his compassion and mercy. And we're going to see that he's willing to deliver people from circumstances where they're suffering. And he's willing to deliver them when they might not deserve it. So these concepts, then, they carry forward to our time. Okay? So Judges isn't just a history book in the Bible. It's about God's people then, and it's about God's people today. So we're going to be in, in Judges 2, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 16. And if you want to follow along with me, this is what it says. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which the fathers had walked and obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. So the people are in a bad situation here. They're currently enslaved and they're plundered by their enemies. All right, But the situation is not out of control. The people have hope in the midst of their distress right now. Joshua is gone. Moses is no longer around. But God sends them judges instead. And then these judges, they're not like modern judges that we have today in a courtroom. They're similar, but their activities expanded beyond just a courtroom setting or criminal justice uh, system. So they had this judicial role in settling disputes, yes. But they were also sort of a civic and military leader. So there isn't any modern equivalent to a judge in the biblical book of Judges. These were people that were sent to mediate between God and his people and also to lead the people as a community and also to lead them in uh, the, the role of a general or military leader. Okay, so these, these judges, in other words, had the capacity to lead people in peacetime and wartime. And when they needed to, they would deliver the people physically um, from their enemies. And this word judge, if you look at the Hebrew, this is what it means. It means to save or to rescue. And these men, and at least one woman that's recorded in Judges, um, they were divinely appointed rescuers or saviors of the people. They also had the authority to lead. Just kind of aside, this is interesting. If you, if you look at judges, they didn't have authority over the entire nation. It would have been regional. So like some judges would have been over these tribes, and some judges would have been over these tribes. And so if you look at the chronology, it might overlap a little bit, which means that some of them could have been active at the same time 
as another judge, but just in a different part of the whole nation of Israel. So what we see when we look at it, though, when the judges come, we see the people that are insufficient to rule over themselves. And they're stubborn. They don't obey God. It's a people just like us. And it says in the text, they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. And that phrase, playing the harlot, it means that they were pursuing infidelity away from a healthy relationship with God. They went lustfully after something that was akin to an adulterous relationship. And they shouldn't have gone after it because they already had this healthy relationship with, with God in, in the covenant. It's like they were seeking out a prostitute when they should have been happily married. And I know that kind of sounds stark, um, but the author uses this term because it's, it's there not just in a figurative sense, it's literal too. In, in Canaan, these Canaanite gods, they were worshipped through prostitution. So that's why that's in there. We ought to get the point that they were rejecting God and they were pursuing something of their own desires. And so bad things are happening, but it's getting better. At the beginning of 16, it says the judges were raised up who delivered them. And so that, that kind of summarizes God's response to this predicament that they're in, which is a predicament of sin and, and physical distress and oppression. He's compassionate when he does that. He's faithful to a people that he loves, even when they're not loving him back. So he sees their plight, and he sends them a deliverer. So I want to follow this, and we'll see how this works out for the people. In verse 18, it says, When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord is with the judge, and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about that when the judge died, that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers. And following other gods to serve and bow down to them, they did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So what we see here is a brief summary of the work of the judges. And it's what I like to refer to as the judges cycle. And, and so the judges cycle is sort of a meta-narrative. All right, um, I want us to think about this. It's a meta-narrative that ties the entire book of Judges together. It's not just this passage, but it's a theme throughout the entire book. And what it is is a repeated cycle of interaction between God and his people. And it's dictated by the character and purposes of God and not the people that seem to be the, the, the primary figures in these chronicles. So the writer's concerned that the audience should get that this is about the character of God and God's will. It's not about what the judges do. It's about what God's doing. And, and so we see that God's faithful in this judges cycle as people struggle in obedience. And so this is kind of how it works. There's a diagram there um, behind me. And, and generally it kind of goes like this. The people are blessed and they're in the promised land. They've got the Mosaic Covenant. Things are going well. They're abiding by it. And they're, they're reaping their good reward. All right? But then comes disobedience and sin. And because of that sin, they get a consequence. And in this case, it happens to be physical oppression. And that goes on for an amount of time. And the people finally cry out for help. And then God mercifully intervenes on their behalf and he gives them deliverance. And then what happens after that is that it's followed by a short period of obedience. And, and this deliverance puts them back in uh, the land of blessing, if you will. 
but then it repeats. It cycles and cycles, spins. And we see that several times throughout the whole book of Judges. And if we zoom out from Judges, it cycles throughout human history when people reject God. So I think it's a good model for us to think about current situations too. We can see several things about the components of God's character here. And the first, like I said before, is that he's compassionate. This is obvious. He's moved to pity by the people's groaning. They cried out for help, and he couldn't abide with their distress because he loves them. So even though God was angry with the people that had rejected him, he didn't reject them. You see that? He had a deep sorrow for these people, and he longed to bless them. So this is not a vengeful God or the mean God of the Old Testament, but this is a God who cares deeply for his people despite their shortcomings. And in this passage, I think Yahweh seems especially sensitive to human experience of calamity and suffering. He's compassionate. The other thing is that he's merciful. And I think this is a classic passage that can help us to understand God's mercy. He's like a good father. He isn't afraid to mete out discipline when it's needed, but he also knows when enough is enough. And what the people need is not more discipline, but they need a staying of their consequences and they need love. They need mercy. He gives them something that they don't necessarily deserve. And he gives them a way out of their distress in this case. And the third thing, and I think most important, is that this is an example of grace. This is a picture of grace that God gives his people. He's giving them something that they don't deserve. He's sending them a deliverer in the form of the judges who is a temporary savior to get them out of their circumstances which were the result of their own sin. This is divine grace. It's unmerited favor. That's how we could define that. And, and I want you to know that this grace happens without repentance. The groaning that, that God heard in verse 18, that was an appeal for help. It wasn't repentance or godly sorrow. So this grace isn't based on the people's merit or their up and down obedience. Okay? It's not based on what the Hebrews do. What the Hebrews do is repetitively objectionable throughout Judges. So this grace, this deliverance that God has given them is the only thing then that guarantees their physical protection and security. Um, it's the only thing that gives them salvation. And if we fast forward that concept to Christ and our faith in Christ, grace is the only thing that gives us protection and salvation and eternity. It's our guarantee. So unfortunately, though, we learned that the judges, they couldn't save Israel from themselves. They could have, they could have saved them physically, perhaps, from some enemies. Um, but the people are still people, um, and God's sovereign over that. So as, as the judges' period unfolds, then Israel goes into a big time, it's a moral tailspin. And, and it just gets worse and worse as the book unfolds. Uh, they become apostate to a large degree. And apostasy means that they rejected their faith. And so this is what happened to him. And we're going to pick it up in verse 20 in chapter 2. And then I'm going to read through um, the beginning of chapter 3 through verse 6. This is what it says. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded to their fathers and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations 
which Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them. Whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan. Only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. The nations are the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their father through Moses. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Doesn't end well there. People didn't learn the lessons that God wanted them to learn, and now they're going to have to profit a little bit from his chastening, is what's happening. And so this is divine anger when God's angry. It's like we've considered before, it's just, it's righteous. This is a good God who cares deeply about his people, but sin makes him angry. And legitimately so, because his people are rejecting him, and all he wants is a healthy relationship with them. So, because the people... I want you to think about this. Because the people repeatedly disobeyed God's laws that he had clearly given them several times, subsequent generations would not just get to simply inherit the blessings. They're each going to have to demonstrate their commitment to God. God left those nations in there who represented the different people groups to test the Hebrews. And these peoples include the Philistine alliance, uh, which, is, which is an arch enemy throughout a lot of the Old Testament of, of the Hebrew people. And this also helps us to appreciate this meta-narrative of Judges, right? This big theme, overarching Judges, because when we read through the character profiles of the Judges themselves, there's always this backdrop fight that's going on, and it's between Israel and one of these people groups that God left in the land. So this, this passage is kind of a key to interpreting the rest of the book. But hey, had, had they obeyed God at this point, they would have stayed victorious, they would have lived in the land of promise and blessing, they would have been an invincible stronghold against their external enemies because God was on their side. But instead they rejected him and they're defeated and they're humbled and they're stuck in despair and sin. So I, I think a major takeaway here from this is that God allows testing for his people for their benefit. And I think this concept of testing is unmistakable because it's mentioned three separate times just in this text. And I don't think that people 3,000 years ago would have been surprised at that either. They knew that they were promised uh, consequences if they had infidelity. They knew that they had transgressed God's covenant. And in Joshua, uh, it's chapter 23, Joshua told them, he said, Know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you, but there'll be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish off this good land. Joshua told them what was going to happen if they failed to obey and so it was happening. So they knew. But I'm also willing to bet you that there were some people there that were saying, why would a good God let this happen to us? So 
But I want you to understand that even in testing, God's faithful. Okay? So there's at least three good reasons why he gave him this testing. Number one, it's pretty obvious that testing was a form of discipline. They had failed to obey his commands. They worshipped idols. They didn't drive out the people as they were directed to do. So accordingly, they had continued conflict. And that was going to be a consequence for the disobedience. So this was a logical consequence. Um, But on a deeper level, this testing was to strengthen their faith. It was to strengthen their spiritual mettle. Why don't you think about this? This would determine if the people would be faithful in return. God's faithful to them. He's looking for them to to, uh, come back. And so it's making the people rely on God instead of themselves when they're in this distress. And that faithfulness for Israel would prove whether or not they're going to hang on to the privileges of the covenant uh, status that they had. So in this testing of their faith, Israel wasn't going to take for granted the freedoms and blessings that she had. And then the third thing I think is just practical, and it was to improve their physical skills in warfare. So soldiers who experienced warfare would be better fighters and leaders, and then they would be able to pass down their skills to the next generation, right? And so testing would equip them to be better warriors and teachers. And so the, the, um, the second and, and third reason here then tie together, all right? So testing was to strengthen their faith, uh, but it was also to give them experience in conflict so they needed to learn how to fight successfully while depending on the Lord for victory. That's what's going on here. And it's painful to realize that the Hebrews, at least in this case, ultimately failed their testing in the book of Judges. Okay? Last two verses confirm that. What they did was they assimilated with the culture. They followed their own desires. And, and thankfully for us, we can take a look at that failure and hopefully we can learn from it. We can learn from this Judges cycle. And so, hopefully, I've got your minds wrapped around some of these bigger concepts and themes and judges, some of the theological and historical components of it. Um, But what I want to do is kind of step away from that and put this into more of an applicable or practical um, idea for you so we can utilize this practically in our lives. And so remember this meta-narrative, right? The, The judges cycle. People have... Constant sin and failure. They have distress and despair. Then there's God's deliverance. And remember that the failure of the judges, period, reveals that people have an intrinsic need for a divine king and also a divine deliverer. They couldn't do it on their own. And so those things are timeless, and they apply directly to us as the church. I'll say it, uh, we're also moral failures. We're also despairing sometimes. We, we do suffer. We have a hard time governing ourselves. And we often question why we go through things. We don't understand why we go through things. We're in a mess sometimes. We need out of it. And I also want you to remember that ultimately the reason for that is sin. Mankind's sinful. Uh, the reason um, is that God gave us free will. But the result of it is suffering and death, physically and spiritually. And we can read about that in Genesis. So original sin creates a lot of these experiences of despair and suffering. They don't forget God created the world perfect, right? So sin corrupted that. And that's the bad news that we're all aware of. And we all experience it on 
a certain level, individually, in our families, in society. Well, in the Old Testament narrative, God sent judges to deliver the people and restore the people to their blessing and relationship with him. So that should make us look forward to an ultimate restoration as well. The judges, folks, are a precursor or a foreshadow of something and someone better who's going to deliver people, not just temporarily from physical enemies, but once and for all from all opposition and distress. Judges foreshadow Christ. Christ delivers us. The judges points us to Christ and implies that we ought to trust in Christ to be our deliverer. And you should be asking me, hopefully you should say, Ed, that, that sounds churchy. How does Christ deliver me? How does he practically help me when I'm in despair and distress? Seriously, is this just like a theoretical spiritual thing or is this a physical, practical thing? How can I think about that? I think we should. And so I'm going to give us several, several ways for us to think about our deliverance that we have. So number one, Christ does deliver us spiritually. That's the basis for it. He died on the cross. He paid the death penalty. That's required for sin. And then he defeated sin and death itself by resurrection. So accordingly, we're delivered from an eternity of consequences in hell. And if we have faith in this, then we're promised to a future physical resurrection and eternal security in heaven. That's our salvation. So we've got spiritual deliverance now because of Christ. The Apostle Paul said Christ gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from the present evil age as well so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So this spiritual deliverance isn't just in the future and eternity, it's happening now. Christ has got the power over spiritual forces that may tempt us to sin. He gives us power over our own sin nature and to help us resist temptation. So he's got the power over all things spiritual and he can deal with spiritual enemies that might be involved in, in the reason that we would go through distress or, or despair or have temptation. So he delivers us spiritually. Second one is in a physical sense. Christ does deliver us physically. We don't think about this as often. I want you to think if, if we have better power over sin in our lives because of spiritual deliverance, then we're going to have fewer physical problems. It's not going to solve all physical problems right now. We're going to have fewer physical problems. Think about it. If we honor Christ, if we behave in a Christ-like fashion, okay, if we are conforming to the image of Christ, what happens practically? We probably have less consequences in general. We probably have healthier bodies, healthier relationships. I'm not making mistakes. And then remember, Christ has got power over the entire natural world because he created, right? So he can create, he can miraculously heal, he can calm storms, he can resurrect. And that means that he can intervene in the natural world on the behalf of his followers, if it's in his will. Paul talked about that, too. He was on a missionary trip where he was despaired and distressed. And he says that instead he was delivered from death, and he gave Christ glory for that. And then also don't forget in the end of time, we read in Revelations, Christ is going to militarily come back and defeat all of his enemies. So Christ can deliver us physically. 
spiritually and physically. Third thing, third way that we can think about how Christ delivers us is more to the heart. Um, he can deliver us on an emotional and a psychological level too. All right? Because we have this spiritual eternal victory over sin and death, we should have better strength and difficulty now and hope for tomorrow. We can be resilient when we're going through some of these difficult things. If we have eternal deliverance, we don't need to fret about life's difficulties nearly as much as we do because we can acknowledge that they are very temporary. We can have an eternal perspective on things. Okay, and that should translate, honestly, that should translate to less despair now. And I want you to think about this. People that are despaired, they are often lonely. They're hopeless. They'll tell me, I feel like I don't have purpose. I feel worthless. Or I'm anxious. I'm fearful. And I don't know why. Well, if we have Christ, we don't have to be fearful or anxious about anything because Christ is sovereign over everything. He controls the world and all the events in it. We can rest in that. That can give us peace. And moreover, if I'm a Christ follower, okay, I shouldn't be lonely. I've got a relationship now with my creator who loves me. I'm never by myself. And my hopelessness, that's erased because I have an eternity to look forward to. And I understand that I'm not alone in adversity. I do have hope. It's the only real hope. And because I'm a Christ follower now, suddenly I have an identity, right? Yes, I'm made in the image of God, but now my identity is as a Christ follower and his family, and that gives me great worth, and it gives me purpose to honor and serve him, and that gives me something great to do. As believers, we have the greatest calling. And the best part about all this is that, just like in Judges, it's based on grace. And the requirement for Christ to be the solution to some of our distress, psychologically, emotionally, is that we just trust him. So this isn't something that we work for. It's based on our faith. If we realize our insufficiency to solve things by ourselves and our need for a deliverer and we put our faith in Christ, then we can receive this deliverance that he gives us if we trust Christ. Now, this does not mean that our lives suddenly get easy, all right? This is not a self-help thing. In fact, it probably means the opposite. So think about this. Our character as Christ's followers, as men and women, are probably forged in adversity. Our lives are not easy. The New Testament writers confirm that too. Peter said, some of you are going to know this, he said, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. So God may allow difficulties in our lives along the way of faith that test us, just like he did to the people and judges. And, and don't get me wrong here. I am not saying that all difficult things are from God to test us. Okay, I'm not saying that. Some bad things that we go through and things that happen are simply an outcome of living in a world that's entropic, that's breaking down, 
And some of the bad things that we go through are an outcome of man's free will and the existence of evil. The natural outcome of being a human. But if we have the perspective, all right, if we have the perspective that some of the difficulties that we go through are also for testing us, then we can be resilient when we go through them. So God might allow difficulties in our lives that improve and strengthen us. So if I ask, why is this bad thing happening to me? The answer may be that God is using it as a training ground. Situations might force us to realize our own personal insufficiency and how we need to rely on him instead of ourselves. Hope that you see that. At times, I think we have to go through difficult things because it brings us to an end of ourselves. And then when that happens, and then we truly see Christ and we'll truly rely on him. But that doesn't happen sometimes unless we're broken down. So it's, it's a tool sometimes to bring us to our knees, make us place our faith in someone who's stronger than ourselves. Other thing I think that's all right about testing is that if we go through it, then we're not becoming complacent, okay? We have to learn to trust Christ in the good and the bad, and that reliance can only really be built in adversity. Think about it. How are we going to be equipped to go through difficult things if we don't go through difficult things? How are we going to be equipped to lead and teach other people, though, through difficulty if we don't go through difficulty in our own lives? But it's all right because we have Christ to see us through our experience and our experience should strengthen our resolve to trust him more and more. So our faith gets stronger as we get better. God sees his people in distress. You guys, he, he loves them, he's faithful to them and that love is overwhelming. But this repetitive cycle in Judges, it, it just makes sense. It helps us make sense of our reality. God's in control, he's compassionate, He's merciful, and he sends an ultimate deliverer. And that deliverer gets us out of the messes in our lives by helping us conquer sin and helping us deal with the consequences of it now and eternally. So some of you have heard the expression, and I hope I get it right. Um, it's something along the lines of good people make good times, and good times make weak people. And weak people make hard times, and hard times make good people. Okay. I don't think there's anything theological there, but it seems to be a kernel of truth somewhere down in it, right? And, and I think it's because the practical nature of that statement has got some biblical origin. It describes a cycle of humans that parallels the judge's cycle that's dependent upon our healthy relationship to God. So I'm just going to encourage us, let's look to Christ to be our deliverer. Let's put our faith in Christ, who's got mercy and compassion for the things that we're going through, the difficulties in our lives and the experiences that don't make sense sometimes. Let's make him the source of our strength and not ourselves. Let's accept his grace. Let's make him our king. Why don't we bow our heads together? Let's go to the Lord in prayer for a minute. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for 
Honestly, the freedom and opportunity to come here, open up your word openly, take a look at it, um, see what it has to say. We can apply it to our lives, and we can do it without fear of repercussion or persecution. Um, I thank you for your word to us in Judges. Even though this thing was written over 3,000 years ago, it's still relevant and applicable to our lives now. And that's miraculous, and I, I'm, I'm thankful for that. And we thank you that you are a compassionate and merciful Father. Thank you that you want what's good for us, not just affirmation. I'm thankful that you put things in our lives to make us better. Thankful for Christ, who's our deliverer. And I pray that we could, we could honestly, as a church, as individuals, experience that reality that Christ delivers us. And the freedom and the release that gives us. Give us resilience and difficulty. Um, and I pray that we could have opportunities to share this information with other people too. It's a message that everybody needs in the whole world. So I pray that you'd bless this church. I pray that you unite us together um, on our common confession. And I pray that you would strengthen us and, uh, and encourage us as we go forward this week. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.